Good morning, church. We're at now the end of a series on assurance. You've made it through the summer, and we've been talking about various aspects of assurance, and that is the question of how one can know for sure whether or not they're redeemed. And if you are redeemed, if you've ever struggled with doubt or despair, or you've wrestled with the reality of whether or not you'll be able to stand before God on that day, um, this series has been shaped to kind of help you come back to the core doctrinal truths of our faith on which we build our assurance. And so it's been a, a series through different aspects of Christianity, um, clarifying the gospel, but also intensely personal because each one of us are various places in our walk with Christ. And some of us, I think perhaps even more of us than we might think, are dealing with various degrees of doubt or fear or anxiety or worry that can be resolved if we come back to understanding the great love that God has for His children and the assurance He intends for us to have is confidence. So we're finishing, and I want to finish on the note that assurance does not exist. God's assurance and the Spirit's gift of assurance is not merely a bed for you to remain cozy in. Is not something that you feel good about and then remain comfortable with. It is rather a headquarters for you to be launched out from. That when you have true assurance of the love of God for you, the unshakable, immovable, great, immeasurable love that God has for His children, it becomes a launching pad for you to get out into the world with your neighbors, friends, families, to take risks for God, knowing that you are totally and completely secure in the love of God. And so I've been telling stories about people who have kind of illustrated the point that I'm trying to make throughout this series. I want to start with a man by the name of Adoniram Judson. You heard of him? Baptist missionary. Went to Burma, married a woman named Anne before they left. He didn't know it, but in his missionary ventures, he would face incredible difficulty. He left the comforts of his home to go to a foreign land where he would face all kinds of discomfort. First of all, his ministry was apparently fruitless for many years. Didn't see any converts for the first, I think, six or seven years of his time there. Their family went, lived through a brutal war in Burma where he ended up being imprisoned for 17 months while his wife, who was sick at the time, was nursing a newborn child. After that, his wife died. He would end up getting remarried and that wife would die. The battle that he faced was not only one that would seem to be externally physical, facing sickness, facing death, facing all kinds of violence around him in the country they were in, but spiritual. People were very antagonistic early on and had not wanted nothing to do with his gospel. It was difficult. And he went through a lot. 
And I ask myself when I read biographies and I read about men and women like this, where do you get these people from? What drives them? What's motivating them? What kind of fuel do they have in them that's making them continue on forward through the difficulty, through the fear, through the pain, through the agony, through death, even risking their own lives? Where do you get those kind of people? Where are they coming from? What kind of fuel do they have? And you find it in a quote like this that demonstrates Adoniram Judson's mindset. He, he said toward the end of his life, listen to this, and this will help you get the, the link between your assurance and your mission, your assurance and your ability to sacrifice, your assurance and your ability to go and take risks in obedience to the Great Commission. He said, if I had not felt certain, catch that? If I had not felt certain that every additional trial was ordered by infinite love and mercy, I could not have survived my accumulated suffering. If I did not believe in an infinite God of infinite mercy and infinite love who is ordering all this difficulty, I wouldn't have made it. But because I have rock-solid confidence in the sovereign God who loves me and orchestrates the universe for my good, then I can go anywhere, anytime, anyplace and serve and risk out of sacrificial love for the good of His glory for the advance of the Gospel because I am immovably secure in the love of God. And when you are immovably secure in the love of God, you can take similar risks. And my prayer is that some of you will say, yes, I want to do that. That might look like walking across the street to invite a neighbor to a Bible study. That might look like talking to a family member about their walk with God. That might look like you moving to Burma as it did for Adoniram Judson. Saying, I will rise with Christ one day if I die. But I want you to see that this kind of obedience is growing in the soils of assurance. And so if you have struggled with insecurity... If you have been among those people who have struggled with, man, does God really love me that much? <laughs> does, does He really care for me that much? Am I really all that welcome into His presence? I know He cares about other people. I see other people's patent prayers being answered and it doesn't seem like it's that way for me. If you've ever been there, I want to talk to you about how you grow in assurance. Obviously, the theme of this whole series has been look to Christ, look to Christ, look to Christ, keep looking to Christ, keep understanding the Gospel, understand the doctrines of the Gospel, the core truths that uphold the Gospel. you got to get those things. And so I don't want to move away from that because in this whole thing, what I'm about to teach on from Second Peter is starting in and rooted in you're looking to Christ and resting and trusting Him. But... Peter gets very practical for you if you want to grow in your assurance and develop this solid certainty of your salvation. I want you to turn to 2 Peter. I want you to turn to 2 Peter where we're going to start in, in chapter 1 and we're going to look at verse 3. And we're going to go from 3 you know, basically down to 10. Um, 
Before we get to three, though, we're going to kind of jump around in this section so you can understand it in its context. So first, actually, look at verse 5. In the middle of this little section where Peter is teaching a church in this particular part some of the basics of walking and growing in Christ, verse 5 says, For this very reason, make every effort. Stop there. For this reason, make every effort. In the following two verses, 5, 6, 7, he will go on to describe the Christian's efforts to add certain qualities to their faith. You will see in verse 5, add to your faith virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, affection, brotherly affection, and love. And then in verse 8, follow me, look at verse 8. He says, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Listen to this, verse 10. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. Can you see the link to assurance here? Verse 8, practicing these qualities will keep you from being an ineffective, unfruitful Christian. Any of you aspiring to be ineffective and unfruitful Christians? No, you're not. You want to be an effective Christian. What do you do? Practice these qualities in verses 5 to 7. These qualities, verse 9, are evidences that we have not abandoned the gospel. If we have these in our lives, they're growing, they're evidence that we're clinging to the gospel rather than forgetting the gospel. And verse 10 says that these qualities, in addition to helping us become effective and fruitful, also they are the indicators that we are making it to the end. If you practice these things, you will make it. You will not fail to make it to the end. Verse 11, for in this way, in this kind of lifestyle, in this kind of pursuit, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In other words, if you're following this logic here, you're hearing this. If you want to be fruit-bearing, if you want to be gospel-loving and not gospel-forgetting, if you want to be enduring-to-the-end Christians, you need to perk up and pay attention to what he's saying we must do in verses 5-7. to seven. If you ever thought that salvation means you do not do anything and you do not add any effort and you do not work diligently for anything then you're misreading especially this text. Salvation is opposed to earning. It is not opposed to effort. And we will see that this effort does not come as an attempt to gain salvation, 
but it comes as an outflow of the salvation God has already given us in Christ. Look at verse 3 now to get you the context a little bit even further. His, that's God's divine power, has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Friends, this is a bang. This book starts with a bang because it's beginning by saying that God's divine power, that's infinite power, that's omnipotence, has been granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. You want to live a life of honoring God, a life of godliness, you have, by God's divine power, everything you need. Christians are not allowed to say, nope, can't do it, unable to, when it comes to matters of godliness and obedience. Because God is here giving us the resources we need through Jesus Christ. Look at verse 3, continuing on. Through the knowledge of Him, through our knowing of Him, through our relationship with God who called us to His own glory and excellence. He's invited us into this family-type relationship, father-child relationship. We know God. And because we know God, we have a knowledge of Him because of His divine power now is aimed at us, we have all the things we need for life and godliness. Verse 4, by which He has granted to us precious and very great promises so that through them you might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. God has made promises. He has made promises to His people through His Son. Promises about salvation. Promises of Him never leaving or forsaking us. He has promised to be there with us. He has promised so many blessings to His children. He has then given us all that we need to live a life of godliness. He has His infinite divine power aimed at us. He has accomplished salvation for us. Now we, by faith alone, are justified, are welcomed now into His family. We are in the family and enabled by His Spirit to walk in godliness. If you're not a Christian this morning, let me just say, before I get into the make every effort category of this section, I need to make it very clear that if you made every effort in the world, if you worked as hard as you could every day of your life to try to please God, apart from Christ, you would not please Him. That's what the Bible teaches. The Bible says that we are unable to please God in our flesh apart from Christ, that we are sinners, and God would be good and right to punish us for our sin. He would be just to make us pay for it ourselves. But the Gospel is that in His abundant and overflowing love, He sent His Son Jesus Christ who came and lived in a life that would never have touched sin. He did not sin for one second. He died on the cross in the place of sinners. God the Father poured out His wrath on God the Son. God the Son willingly endured it for the sake of glorifying His Father and redeeming His people. He rose from the dead. He's alive right now. He calls all people to repentance and faith. In the moment you trust in Jesus Christ, in repentance and faith, you are forgiven. Faith alone is what justifies. And we're about to talk about effort. And this effort will not justify you. Faith will. But the faith that you have in Christ will result in your willingness to now live for Jesus in your day-to-day life. So look at verse 5. For this reason, make 
every effort. Make every effort. The result of your efforts will be fruitfulness, assurance. This make every effort, it should be obvious that this is referring to intentional, deliberate effort. This is referring to energy put toward your spiritual growth. Uh, This is not the kind of thing you drift into. The kind of growth that Peter's describing here, where you're adding your faith with virtue, with virtue, with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, this is not something you kind of float into. This calls for discipline, energy. This calls for some deliberate effort. You could imagine it this way. You're out at sea. You've fallen into the water. There's a current pulling you away from the lifeboat. To merely tread water is to drift. If you would grow in Christ, you must begin to swim. If you would add in all these ways what Peter is saying, you must get busy. Make every effort. You want to grow in assurance? You want to grow in confidence? You want to get out of whatever despair might be starting to strangle you? Let me encourage you here. I understand that there's times in life where it seems so hard to just get out of bed. But what Peter's calling us to is understanding the great love that God has toward us, the great power He's given us that enables us to do all things for life and godliness, the great promises that He's made, that by believing in them, by faith, we can escape the corruption of the world. Because of all these promises, we can now, all right, get up and let's make every effort. Isn't it sad when when Christians kind of drift into a lazy half-hearted, self-absorbed, smug, easy, non-sacrificial, self-serving, quote-unquote, Christianity. The Christianity is almost more cultural than it is real. It's something maybe that they do rather than something that is who they are. So here we are called to make every effort. How are you doing making every effort to grow in Christ? I mean, there are pagans who don't know the Lord, don't love the Lord, don't believe the Lord, don't have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, don't have the mission of the church, don't have a dying and rising Savior who are putting in all kinds of effort to grow. I remember reading Ben Franklin's autobiography some years ago and being impressed by this man's diligence to try to improve his own character. He would be up early in the morning and he would ask himself, what good will I do today? He would journal it and at night he would revisit, he would ask himself a different question, what good have I done today? And he would spend part of his evening contemplating how he is going to improve the next day. Do you make effort to grow? Do you put yourself on a spiritual regimen to grow in Christ? The great Christians who have gone before us, who have paved the way for us to be gathered this morning, who have fought for the Gospel, preached it, spread it, are those who have put forth effort 
not to earn anything from God, but because they love Him and they want others to love Him and they want to be a vessel suitable for the work of God. So they put forth effort in their own sanctification. You will not become more compassionate tomorrow morning. You will not become more patient, more wise by accident. It doesn't happen that way. You won't wake up one morning to the serendipitous realization that you're not angry anymore. Sorry. That's not how God has chosen to sanctify us. Rather, He sanctifies us as we, in trust of Him, by faith, move forward and make every effort. I've heard it put this way. The miracle of sanctification is something we do. It's God's miracle, don't get me wrong. We act the miracle. God, by His grace, is producing any growth. He gets all the credit. And we are called to act the miracle. Putting forth the effort. And God, by His grace, gets all credit because He's the one that actually makes it happen. Look at that word next. Uh, for every, this very reason, make every effort to supplement. That is not referring to a scant supply. This is referring to generous supply. Fill up your life with these qualities. Generously supply your faith. All these other virtues. All these other qualities. Work for them. Add them into your life. And so what he notes here are, are seven after faith. He mentions faith. Seven qualities that we are to be practicing if we want to increase in fruitfulness and godliness and grow in our assurance. And as we do this, I'd like for you to do something. I'm going to describe each quality and I want you to take it in, understanding that this is from God for you this morning. I want you to ask yourself that question. How am I doing practicing these things? Developing these things? Practicing these qualities in my life? Let's start with virtue. For this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. I actually don't like the ESV translation here. Uh, the reason is, is because in chapter 1, verse 3, you see this. We already looked at it. It talks about God who called us to His own glory and, what's that word? Excellence. You see that in the end of verse 3? That is actually the same exact word as what's translated in verse 5 as virtue. I wish they would have been consistent and either chose virtue for both or excellence for both because they're referring to the same idea. And what he's saying in verse 3 is that this is part of God's character. God is glorious, verse 3, and excellent. And then he calls us in imitation of God to add to our faith excellence. The Greek word is arete. It has the idea as a kind of a broad range of meaning. It could mean a lot of different things. It often refers to someone with valor, someone who is noble, someone who is honorable. The ancient Greeks would use this word to describe Greek heroes in their myths and legends. They were arete. They were excellent. They had moral virtue. They were noble people. It refers to excelling in your character, excelling in your virtue. It's the opposite of mediocrity. I've read in uh, somewhere that our generation is addicted to mediocrity. 
Our generation is not very good at doing things to the best of their ability. This word virtue, this word excellence, is the opposite of mediocrity. And what he's saying is to your faith, I want you to add excellence. Don't be a mediocre Christian. Don't be sloppy about the things you're called to do in life. Don't be a compromising, convictionless, spineless, directionless Christian addicted to mediocrity. Don't do that. Be a Christian who excels, aims to grow, aims to do things right, seeks to have integrity. I remember reading in a book called The Vanishing American Adult a few years back, um, written by a, a Nebraskan senator, a guy named Ben Sass. He's actually a Christian. He was the president of a Christian university. And he's telling the story that kind of went behind him writing the book. And he tells the story of when he was the university's president, he asked the athletic department to set up a 20-foot Christmas tree in the gymnasium. For Christmas uh, events coming up, they need to set this thing up. And so he has them do the job. And so the students get on it. These 18, 19-year-olds get on it. They start setting up the tree. And they get the tree up. It's a 20-foot you know, fake tree. They set it all up. It's, it's there in the gymnasium. And a vice president walks in and sees what's going on there, notices something odd about the tree. The students at this point have all stopped working on it. The vice president notices that the decorations on the tree only go up to seven, eight feet. He goes, why is, why is the work only half done? The students go, well, we couldn't find a ladder. And the vice president says, did anyone ask for a ladder? To which all the students go, oh. He said, when he heard that story, he thought, what is happening to our generation that's coming up into adulthood? They run into a problem and they don't have the grit to work it out and figure it out and get it done. They're going to walk away from a job when it's half complete. They're going to, to, to sit here and shrug their shoulders and not seek to do anything to fix the problem. That's not excellence. And I tell that story to say that the Christian is called to add to your faith a certain measure of virtue and excellence in all the areas of life that God has called you to. So what are you? You're a student? Be excellent in your homework, in your classes. Be responsible. Have integrity. You're a businessman? Do so with integrity. Have your dealings matter you're a manager of people, have integrity. Do not compromise. Don't settle for mediocrity. You're a mother, do your job well. Seek to do it well for the glory of God. You're a teacher. Whatever field God has put you in, seek to be excellence. Andreas Kostenberger, commenting on this, said, mediocrity and sloppy workmanship never glorify God. They never do. And whatever God has called you to do, do it with all your might, do it well, that's excellence. And the faith that we profess is never to be sloppy. We are to work out our faith with a certain kind of virtue in the things we do. Does that make sense? A certain kind of excellence in what we're pursuing, a nobility. We are not to be compromising. We are not to be spineless. We're to work hard for the glory of God. And when we face hindrances, we power through by His grace to do the best we possibly can. 
Now that's not the only thing he calls us to add. You got your faith, add virtue, add excellence to that. That's a way we reflect the character of God. And look at it goes on, and virtue, you add knowledge. This word here is not just referring to knowing about something, but knowing someone. It's a relational word that has to do with knowing someone personally. It's not kind of knowledge of someone you know through their resume. It's more like a husband and a wife or a father and a child. It's a close relationship. And what he's saying to your faith, yes, add virtue and continue growing because you want to also continue to grow in your knowledge. Keep supplying more knowledge. Knowledge of God. Knowledge of His will for your life through His Word. See, see, Satan entered the world and plagued it with a lie. And since then, our world has been so overrun with untruth. And we need to have knowledge of what is true. And Christians, in particular, need to be particularly valiant about fighting for the truth. And what we always see in the New Testament, if you want to grow in Christ... Become more godly, more Christ-like. What do you need to do? You need to pursue a knowledge of God and His Word. Colossians 3.10 Have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge. Your new self, Christian, is renewed as the water of the Word washes over you. Again and again and again as you seek to understand it. Jesus said, Jesus prayed, sanctify them, talking about His people, in the truth. Your Word is truth. You want to be more holy, Christ-like, obedient. Grow in your knowledge of the Scriptures. Grow in your knowledge of God and your relationship with Him. Uh, the president of Princeton, back when it was a powerhouse of Orthodox Christianity, it was training up leaders left and right. It was an effective ministry. Uh, his name was Archibald Alexander. And he would teach his students this, and I quote, make it a rule to always prefer the Bible. Make it a rule to always prefer the Bible. If at the hours of devotion... You're strongly drawn towards some new and interesting publication. If you are tempted for this to omit the regular study of the Scriptures, regard it as a temptation and resist it accordingly. You catch what he's saying? He's saying if there are things in your life that are gaining preference, books to read, shows to watch, social media sites to peruse, we are more drawn toward those. His advice would be make it a rule to always prefer the Bible. And when you sense something else starting to creep in there and pull your heart away, see it as a temptation to resist it accordingly. In other words, let's prefer the Bible so that we could grow in the knowledge of God. Let's be lovers of Scripture. Let's be lovers of truth. Let's be those who seek to grow in our knowledge. He goes on to say, I love his, the, the, his picture he paints here. He goes, my own experience convinces me that the oftener and the more diligently you peruse the Scriptures, the more beautiful they will appear. And the less relish you will have for light and superficial reading or amusement. There is... In an intimate and daily conversation with the Scriptures, something sanctifying, something ennobling, 
A satisfaction is felt in perusing them, which no human composition can excite. You feel as if you were conversing with God and angels. You breathe a heavenly atmosphere. Your soul is bathed in celestial waters. How's your commitment to the Word of God? I know we often can read to check a box, but are you reading to grow not in just the bare facts, knowledge to get into your mind like data, but are you reading to know your God? Studying, meditating, perusing, pondering Scripture, lingering on texts to draw out from them deeper understandings of who your God is and what He asks of you. In Hosea, God said, my people die for lack of knowledge. Are you growing in your knowledge of God? Maybe one of the things you do in response to this sermon is go talk to some other Christian friends here and you say, I want to read the Scriptures better. Could you help me or do it with me? I don't have any kind of plan. Maybe I could get started on a plan. Could you hold me accountable? I hope you become a lover of Scripture if you're not already. I hope you become obsessed with it. I hope it becomes a life vest for you to live in every day. The truth you put on, you gird yourselves up with each and every morning. It's the meditation of your heart. That You love the Word of God like the psalmist in 119. It's like honey. <laughs> it's a delight. And yet it's hard to grow in our love for Scripture when we love all the things of the world and they're distracting us from ever spending any time in the Word of God. So he's calling us to have faith and to our faith we add virtue and excellence. To our excellence we're adding knowledge. We're seeking to grow in our knowledge. Let's look at the third virtue he's describing here. The third quality. He calls us to add self-control. Now what good would it be if you could get all the knowledge in the world and no self-control to apply to your life? That would be like trying to carry around water in a wicker basket. You're not going to go anywhere. It's not going to accomplish anything. You are called to take what you know. You're growing in knowledge and then to be self-controlled to actually apply that to your life. To actual daily living. In other words, knowledge is not some ethereal, abstract, distant thing that you can keep up here. You take that knowledge in self-control, begin shaping your life by it. Your mornings become different. Your evenings change because you are harnessing your affections and appetites and you're aligning them with what you know to be true. If truth does not make street-level change in you, I wonder if you get the truth. Because to our knowledge, we now add self-control. Now, self-control is tricky. Self-control is tricky. And sometimes we do this. We hide our lack of self-control under the claim of Christian liberty. Do you hide your lack of self-control under the guise that you're free in Christ? I'm not a legalist. I'm not going to be so legalistic about the things I do. My Bible study, my prayer time. 
Oh, how dangerous it can be when we claim to be running away from legalism all because we're coddling our lack of self-control. Is self-control a problem for you? I think it's a problem for a lot of American Christians because we are so wealthy and so affluent. We have so many opportunities all the time, every moment of every day, so many distractions, and we often have no idea to control ourselves in living with those distractions. You have a phone in your pocket, right? Does that expose your need for self-control? It does for me. We have all kinds of opportunities to lose focus on what God has called us to do and think in our lives. So many options all the time, every day, of how we're going to spend our time. If you want to grow, you have to have self-control. Do you know how to tell yourself no? Do you have control over your appetites? Have you mastered your own appetites? Do you regularly come to the end of the day and think, why did I do all that? Why did I spend my time that way? Why did I waste that? Why did I eat that? Why did I say that? I think all of us might need to evaluate ourselves in relation to our self-control and go home and ask God to help us here. One application would be this. Go ask God for help. You can't do this apart from Him. Where does self-control come from? It's a fruit of the Spirit. As you grow in your understanding of His Word, the Spirit will help you, and you need to get on your face and say, God, I have no self-control. I pursue this thing and that thing. I'm over here and I'm distracted there. And I need to be on mission in understanding who You've called me to be. Don't let me call myself a free man when I'm a slave to my desires. Self-control is actually the way to freedom. And you need the Spirit's help to do this because you won't do it on yourself or by yourself. So we've got to add this to our lives. And I would say that not only you can respond to this Word of God in this call for self-control by praying for it, but by asking for help. Friends, we need each other in this. We need arm in arm going through this together, asking each other to, to help us be self-controlled. We need people praying for each other here. Let's look at the fourth quality. To our self-control, we add steadfastness. Steadfastness could also be translated as it is in other places, patience or endurance. And it is specifically referring to the perseverance through difficulty. He's calling us, and again, you actually can see how self-control is directly related to steadfastness because it takes self-control to be steadfast. We are, in light of difficulty in this world, we will all face it and we are already going through it. Steadfast means we are to Hold up by faith through the difficulty. We are not to break down, crumble, and defy God. We are to hold fast to Him, enduring through whatever God has for us. 
We need to be growing in steadfastness. You say, how do you grow in steadfastness? Well, this is an interesting one because the Bible tells us that steadfastness is something that God teaches us through suffering. Isn't that interesting? In other words, it, it seems to be the case that we can ask God for patience, we can ask God for steadfastness, and we should. And often the way He's going to answer that prayer is by what? He's going to put you right in the fire. He's going to take you to the valley. He's going to make life hard for you. I remember there was a few years back when Asher and I went through a particularly difficult time in our life. And we were grieving. And we were talking to some church members about the things that had happened. And I couldn't stop help but think, as I explained how we were processing things to our friends, I said, you know, we've been asking for patience. We've been asking for wisdom. And so when things like this happen, we've got to see them as answers to prayer. How else is God going to build in the ability to endure through trial except by taking you through it? The ability did he trust him in the dark unless he shuts off the light every now and again? James 1, chapter 2, you know the verse, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. God will test your faith and count it joy because He's producing patience, steadfastness in your life. Romans chapter 5, verse 3, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Why? Knowing that suffering produces endurance. Same word. Endurance produces character. In other words, how do you grow in steadfastness? It's by this. You don't let your trials work against you. You let your trials work for you. You put them to work. By faith, you take your trial and you say, God, by your grace, I want you to use this in me to produce steadfastness. You put the little trials in that category and the big trials in that category, and you say to God, humbly, Lord, this is hard, but please produce steadfastness in this. And you will not grow in steadfastness if in the moment of your testing, if in the times it gets dark, you crumble and you walk away from God. You get angry and you cry out against Him. It is the childlike faith that clings to daddy when it's dark outside that a Christian needs to have in the middle of the trials. So you count it all joy, you rejoice in suffering, and God by His grace turns that suffering into steadfastness. So add that to your life. So grab hold of the moments of suffering and use them for your own growth. And now he goes on, steadfastness, what are you going to add to that? To steadfastness add godliness. You might say, why that one in the middle? Godliness seems so basic, seems so fundamental. Godliness. It's sometimes hard to understand because it's so common. We talk about godliness all the time. Some have used the word godlikeness to describe the meaning of godliness or godwordness. In other words, godliness refers to our acting like God and living in light of God's reality. What it means is we are becoming more Christ-like. The character of God is being manifested in our lives. Some in the past have used the word piety to convey this idea. What it refers to is your fundamental inward character. 
It is not referring to your outward habits. The fact that you go to church, the fact that you read the Bible, those things could be results of true godliness, but not necessarily. Godliness is referring to who you are on the inside when no one else is looking. See, a truly godly person is godly when no one else knows. They're serving Him in ways that no one else sees. They're not doing things to be seen by others. They're doing things because they actually love God. To pursue godliness, then, means to be in the habit of seeking to love God with all your being. Oh, how good we are at substituting externals for actual godliness. We will go to church. We will be faithful to commit to small groups. We might even check boxes of of our spiritual routines like Bible reading and prayer time. And yet we can, like the Pharisees, be far from God and be ungodly. Because true godliness is who you are on the internal it is to love God, to really love Him with all, the, all that you are. True godliness doesn't act humble. It is humble. It doesn't try to be nice. It genuinely loves. There's no swagger in it. It's a true, warm, humble, childlike pursuit of a love relationship with the living God. Friends, you know godliness when you see it. There's an aroma to it. There's something that happened on the internal life of a person that's godly. You can sense it when you know a person. My favorite stories is J.I. Packer being asked in an interview about some of the influences in his life. J.I. Packer, a theologian, written many books that had been helpful for Christians. and So being asked about his own influences, he said without hesitation, the greatest man I have ever known is the preacher, Martin Lloyd-Jones. The interviewer, curious, asks, well, why? Why did he have such an impact on you? And Packer went on to answer by saying, he was an expository preacher and he brought God with him into the pulpit. I have never sat under a preacher who gave one a sense of the reality and presence of God. Now, true godliness is not only for the preacher. It's not only true of preachers. This is true of Christians. True godliness from the inside out brings with it an aroma that gives people a sense that God is real and He's here and what we're doing matters. Godly people aren't faking this. It's not a game. Heaven is real. Hell is real. God exists. Christ has come. He's alive right now. The Spirit is here. And He lives in daily realization of these eternal truths. And He's a different man because of it. A different woman. And because He lives in light of these realities, the godliness shines. Oh, friends, how much do we need true godliness in the church? 
Uh, let's get a, uh, throw away faux godliness. Let's get away, uh, like get rid of plastic piety that aims to be only externally godly and internally we not, we're not really concerned with how our hearts are. Throw it away. Get empty religion out of here. We need godliness. True, vibrant, living godliness. People who know there's a God and live like that's the case. And how sad it is when a church tries to make up for lack of true godliness with flash and sound and programs and events and systems and structures all because there's no true godliness. We want all of us to be people who are pursuing godliness, to add to our faith real godliness. Let us be godly people. And let the Spirit work mightily among us. To our godliness, he adds, brotherly affection. We're not only to be growing in godliness. In fact, I think these two are related because godliness is our orientation toward God Himself. And then he turns it to the more horizontal way that we are to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. Referring to specifically the idea of a church family loving each other. Brotherly affection. This is the kind of love that is family love. Mutual love. We love each other. We care about each other. So how do you treat one another if you have brotherly love for them? You're kind. You respect them. You give them the benefit of the doubt. You show compassion. You are concerned about their welfare. You're willing to commit to them through thick and thin. That's how families act, healthy families. One of my, my fears is that we would be a church where people come to hear a sermon. They come a little late. They leave a little early. People kind of recognize faces. But what's lacking is any kind of brotherly affection. We don't trust one another enough to open up our lives. Wouldn't that be an awful way to do church? To not ever really connect with one another in love, to care for one another. One of my fears is that people would come and just kind of remain on the fringes, never be much involved in anything or anyone's lives. And I think Peter would say that is not the intent of a church family. That if you want to be growing, then one of the things you're growing in is brotherly affection. That means you care about the people who are here. You like them. You love them. You're committed to them. You want to be with them. You want to invite them into your lives, your homes. You want to share meals with them. You want to bear their burdens. You want to pray with them. You want to rejoice with them. You want to weep with them. You want to go through the ups and downs that a family goes through. This is what a church is to be. Brotherly affection. Are you growing in brotherly affection? Family-like affection. Love and concern and care for the brothers and sisters. The way you would know that you're doing that, that you're growing in that way, is that you would see a pattern in your life of increasing depth of relationship, increasing availability to other people, increasing concern for their lives. You would see in your own life the willingness to walk up to someone to get to know them if you don't know them yet. 
You'd see a willingness to ask questions about their lives so they can know how to care for them better. This is what God's plan is for you. If you've been a Christian and you've been on the fringes for far too long, let me call you now to obedience to this text. Grow in brotherly affection. Grow in brotherly affection. I think one real practical way to apply this at Grace Rancho is to show up to church membership class and be a part of things. Say, I'm here. I'm going to be part of the family. I'm going to make commitments. I'm all in. I want to love these people well. How do I do it? Are you growing in that area? This can be hard if you've never experienced this before, and I want to invite you into this kind of life together. Because it doesn't even end at brotherly affection. To brotherly affection, add love. What starts with faith ends with love. We start with looking to God and trusting Him. We end with looking to others and loving them. And this is beyond brotherly affection. It's more general, and it's referring not just to loving your own family. This kind of love is for your enemies. This is the kind of love that will give sacrificially with no expectation of return. Brotherly love, usually there's mutual care. We're going to love each other. I'm going to love the people who love me and care for the people who care about me. But love, this kind of agape love that is described here, is a love for people who do not or maybe will not love you back. It is going to people who do not know you or maybe not even care about you. It is to sacrifice oneself. And the perfect picture of this love is the cross. If you want to love your brothers and sisters, if you want to love your neighbors and friends, if you want to love people as this is describing, your faith, it starts there, but you add to it a kind of love where you move forward in sacrifice for the people who do not love you and won't reciprocate. And it's because of that kind of love that the Spirit is producing in you that you can go to Burma, that you can cross the street, that you can risk a relationship because you love them and they need Christ. And you say, God, I have faith and I will love. But we will never go there. We will never be such loving people unless we go back to the beginning. We make every effort. I want you to think about the seven qualities that we looked at sometime this week. You can review your notes. You can go back and think through and meditate on them. I would encourage you to even talk about them. We have a, a growth group that meets specifically to talk about the sermon. And I would have you read through these and talk about them and see how you can grow in them. Because this, what did we start with? This is how we become fruitful. Remember that? If these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful. Could you imagine a church where everyone is rigorously devoted to making every effort to grow? We're saying, hey, teach me, help me, grow me, invest in me. And I'm going to do the same for you and we're going to grow together in Christ. We're going to do this together. We're going to make every effort. 
And as we do, we're going to find out that this is how our assurance is bolstered. This is how we grow. And we who practice these qualities will never fall, the text says. So these qualities, for you who have needed to grow in assurance, let's circle it all the way back to the beginning. For those of you who have needed to grow in assurance, make every effort. But let me warn you, as you're making the effort to produce these things in your lives, don't stare at these qualities. What are you going to stare at? You're going to stare at Christ. The temptation will be, okay, I've got to produce love. Am I loving enough? I've got to produce brotherly affection. Am I doing it enough? I've got to be more self-controlled. Am I doing it enough? Am I doing it enough? And you're staring at the qualities that God intends for you to have. You want to pursue those qualities with every effort in you. But you want to do so with your eye on the cross. And you want to do so with your eye on the resurrected Savior. You want to do so remembering that He has granted to you all things for life and godliness. You want to do so remembering that He has promised you, and He's made you precious promises that you, by faith and believing them, can walk forward in obedience and growth. Are you making every effort? How are you going to respond to this? My prayer is that you would have a renewed and refreshed zeal for spiritual growth. And if any of you have begun to coast, that you would have been rattled out of that mindset and given a reason from God to go all out. Go all in for Christ and His glory in the short number of years that He's given you on this earth. And then it wouldn't be you doing it by yourself that the whole church would join you as we pursue Christ with everything we've got. Let's pray. So Lord, I pray now for protection against people who might think that by making efforts they can earn favor. I pray for protection against the hearts that might think that in doing these things they're earning your favor. I pray for the hearts that might think that in doing these things they can do it apart from your Holy Spirit's power. I pray that they would recognize it's impossible. But I pray that they would act the miracle. That they would understand that it is only by miracle that they can do any of these things by the power of the Holy Spirit, but they would by faith make every effort and at the same moment trust the Spirit's power to produce the fruit of the Spirit in their lives. And as that happens, oh Lord, move us out in love. Do not let us hear a sermon to grow and be complacent. So raise up zealous Christians, fervent Christians, eager Christians among us. And may we as a church glorify you by going all in and all out for your glory while we have time. In Jesus' name. Amen.